It's August 1st, 2022. This is Rook. there. Welcome to episode 194 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Nice to be talking to you. I hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world, around the globe. Hello to you. Salam, dustan aziz, durud, bar shama. Hi, Groovy Shaya. Happy August to you. August, August, we're here. Um, listen, we, great show today. Two very special guests. I've been aware of our first guest uh, for a few years now. It's kind of hard to miss her if you're sort of aware of the Iranian-Canadian mm-hmm. um, impressive people who are doing things. She's, she's an outstanding award-winning athlete in the sport of karate competing for Canada's national team. And she's an award winner at pageants, including taking the Miss Teen Globe International Award in 2020. And she's only 18 years old. Uh, a very impressive Iranian-Canadian phenom, Mahto Karayi, yes. will join me in the Rook studio yes. in a few minutes. She's out there with her sister is here, her mom is here, uh, the um, fabulous Karayis. Oh, yeah. uh, they should do it like a, some kind of series with the, <laughs> they're all really impressive uh so matt Tokarai joining us in a few moments and not to be outdone later in the show a distinguished iranian canadian journalist cartoonist and blogger uh, look he's now based in dc and his face his voice uh, certainly his work will be familiar to iranians around the world nikahang kosar joins us um He's known for his artfulness, his satire, which, of course, also landed him in trouble with the Iranian clergy a few years back who launched a campaign against him. Yes. Um, you may, some may say, you know, you're doing something right if uh, the Iranian clergy are all angry at you, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> at least a certain kind of Iranian clergy. Um, anyway, he's now very passionate and active with regards to the water shortage crisis uh, in Iran these days, uh, water bankruptcy, which we, you know, we've talked a lot about Khuzestan last year, but this is really a, a problem for all yes, of Iran. Yes. Um, we will get to all of that with Nick Kosar. It's great to have him on the show. I've been looking forward to this, having him here for a long time. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and in Persian, check us out on Telegram. Or you can become a patron, a supporter of the show by pressing the Support Us button uh, at Rook Media. It's so peaceful in the summer when it's just you and I. There's no, <laughs> there's no Reza and Keon. The show seems yeah, so calm and yeah. thoughtful. Yeah. And nostalgic. Yeah, nostalgic, that's right. Because early on, when we began Rook, yeah. uh, I think in the, the first few episodes, we didn't talk at all, no, right? But and then you and I started gradually, talking. Yeah, 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 for a few months, it was just you and I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the Bachaha started to, uh, you know, a fabulous Keon, Captain Reza. Yeah. Um, listen, they're all going to be here next week, or at least we've got a podcast for you next week. 
because we are doing a preview next week of August 15th. That's two weeks from right now. August 15th, Monday, August 15th is the debut of our fun, uh, we like to think of it as fun and educational, but a travel documentary video series called Talking to Persians. We're gonna debut it on August 15th. Our first destination, London. That will be the episode that comes out on August 15th. Talking to Persians, London, featuring all kinds of members of the London, uh, England, Persian community. Next week in this space, if you're listening to us on your podcast platforms, we're going to do a... um, uh, a preview podcast mm-hmm. uh, of Talking to Persians London with Keon and Reza because they, of course, were with me when we went to London last fall and shot this. This is a video series. We're very excited about this. Starting next week, we're also going to start putting uh, little clips and teasers and trailers of what people are going to see in this documentary mm-hmm. uh, on our Instagram and on our YouTube. Uh, so you want to start tuning in for that. Uh, August 15th is the date for Talking to Persians Persians. London. Yes. Shayajun. Yes, yes. A big thank you to Hamid Reza Safipur for helping to make this episode of Rook get to your ears and eyes. That's right, Hamid Safipur Luxury Custom Homes. Look, if you're in the Toronto area or you are an Iranian-Canadian, you may know the name Safipur. Hamid got his master's in civil engineering and got into the field of building and consulting on luxury homes over three decades ago. And in the last 20 years, Team Hamid and Nina have made the Safipur name one of the tops in the business. A name you can trust, Chaya. To buy your dreamland, build your dream house, Safipur Luxury Homes have now teamed up with Remax and they're moving into uh, also doing exotic high-rises that are pretty much beyond things we've seen in Toronto before. If you're thinking to buy or sell or build your dream house, if you're anywhere near the Toronto area or are interested in buying here, get in touch with Safipoor, S-A-F-I-P-O-O-R, Safipoor.com. All right, here we go. My first guest has walked into the studio Uh, She is a teenage sensation, an Iranian-Canadian athlete who has gained remarkable achievements in her field. Mahta Qarayi is a three-time national silver medalist and once bronze medalist at Karate Canada's national championships and was awarded the honorary title of Miss Teen Globe International in 2020. Mato was born and raised in Toronto. She began karate at the age of five and became a junior national team member of Karate Canada in 2017. She has been an Ontario provincial gold medalist 28 times and is also a youth ambassador for two nonprofit organizations, Operation Smile Canada and 360 Kids for homeless and at-risk youth in the York region. She's regularly on the international stage between karate tournaments and pageants traveling the world. Mato received the Ontario Karate Federation's Athlete of the Year Award in 2018 and 2020 for junior females. And right now, Mata Karai joins me live in the Rook studio. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very nice to have you here. Thank you. Well, to be honest, you make me sound 10 times cooler than I actually am. <laughs> you're oh you're pretty cool. You also seem pretty confident here, Thank which you. makes sense for a karate champion and a pageant champion and all the oh. things you have going on. Well, thank you so much. Well, it truly means the honor to be here. I'm an avid fan of you, of Rook Media. I've listened to your podcast, your interviews, your radio voiceovers, everything. Look and at you. A yeah. lot of people that you've invited are like my idols my role models people that i look up to and 
I aspire to be like. Well, I, I think there's going to be a lot of people listening for whom you're a role model or, or will you. become one. You've, you've accomplished so much. Um, I posted an interview a few weeks ago on mm-hmm. my Instagram that I'd done with Ariane Band in 2003. Yes. And you commented, I love that band, although I wasn't born then. <laughs> which, <laughs> which, of course... <laughs> Which, of course, made me feel quite old. I mean, you weren't born in 2003. So, (laughs) all of this that you've done has been in less than two decades. Uh, How how ambitious a human are you? Well, to be honest, I I never set small goals for myself. Here's a quote that I always tell myself No dream is too big and no person is too small. Now, there have been so many scenarios where I've been like the underdog, where I've been the youngest or the smallest. And to be honest, this never limited me. I've always, always told myself that the sky is the limit. So I kept myself, um, I always kept a vision for myself, a vision where, for instance, for karate, I always keep a vision where I want to become a world champion one day. I never set small standards for myself. Mm. I always try to envision um, the highest point I can achieve. Do you know what I mean? I've seen you say this on mm-hmm. on uh, on your social media, et cetera. It's kind of a mantra of yours. Dream yeah. big, don't yeah. be afraid. I, I'm assuming part and parcel of that is if you don't visualize your big goals you'll never achieve them exactly honestly um mindset people's mindsets play a huge role in determining their success and to be honest um here's a really important topic of interest here's a question Mm. do you believe in destiny or hard work and to me i always tell myself that in order to achieve your destiny you need to put in the work so if you want to achieve something, you have to put in 10 times the amount of work. And there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be a bumpy road. There's going to be naysayers. But that's just part of the process. Do you think it's possible to achieve something big without doing the hard work? No. So it's never, not. you can never fluke your way to becoming something successful. Never. There's never a What if you're born with, uh, you, you inherit lots of money and mm-hmm. um, privilege? Mm-hmm. Well, there you have the resources, you have the opportunities, but um, to be honest, those who put in more efforts, those, for example, who come from an average family, when they put in a lot more work than these people, for instance, that have a lot of money, then their success means more than those who have it handed to them in a way. You know, it's funny that I I always say this too, especially um, when it comes to some Iranian artists who I feel like sometimes... I don't want to say they're lazy, but they're mm-hmm. kind of expecting things might just happen for them mm-hmm. or they have this bohemian kind of lifestyle or something. Mm-hmm. And I always say that the, the, if there's one common denominator of all the successful people in a number of different fields mm-hmm. that I've interviewed over the years, mm-hmm. uh, it's that they work their ass off. Like even yeah. if you don't like what they do, even if you say, I don't like, you know, um, uh, Alicia Cara's voice or something, mm-hmm. to be that person they have to inevitably means they're working their butt off. I don't yeah. know, I know very few people who've achieved really big things mm-hmm. without being quite disciplined. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that is, you put it in such a great way. And to me, I always find success like an iceberg. And I remember posting this before. So 10% of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg you see above the water, and mm. that's success. It mm. can be medals, it can be titles, it can be achievements. But the 90% that's below the surface of the water that you don't see, that's the sacrifices. Those are the haters. That's the blood, sweat, and tears. And um, 
unfortunately, many people don't understand that there's a 90% under the water. So in order for you to achieve your dreams, you have to put in so much work. Have you always been, let me get to the blood and the sweat and the tears yeah. Beca- yeah. and the haters. Because yeah. you've said a lot there and I want to know what you're talking about. But, yeah. but I mean, say at age of 15, mm-hmm. a long time ago, mm-hmm. what, three years ago? I would yeah, say so, yeah. You, you were already crowned 2019's Miss Teen Globe America. Uh, and Miss Teen Globe Sports, and you were competing in the Junior Karate Pan Am Championships in Ecuador. So by 15, you already had the big goals, world champion, et cetera, right? Yeah. When did, when did it start? When did, when did that kind of ambition begin in you? To be honest, I think it was whenever I actually made it to the national team because, well, I've always been an ambitious girl ever since I can remember. I was really young and I was one to come Miss Canada. I was one to become successful in any way. And my parents, my family, my especially my sister, they've always, always um, helped me believe in myself. They always told me, Matza, never limit your potential. Never, ever doubt yourself. And they had such a huge role in this and I have them to thank because mm. when you have people that tell you you can do it in some way you you know you can do it because you have people in believing in you it's just up to you to believe in yourself you were born in Canada yes but you were conceived in Iran well I'm born and raised in Canada and uh, the idea of you started in Iran and then <laughs> your, your mom was no. pregnant when no no, no. um Actually, yeah. Yeah, you. I think you were conceived in Iran mm-hmm. because she I was imagine. pregnant when the, your family came to Canada, right? I think so. I don't really remember, but I remember a few months after uh, they moved to Canada, the immigrant to Canada, I was born. So well, so that would. I would and say they so. came straight from Iran to Canada. Yeah, yeah. So deduction, champion. There you go. <laughs> you were, you were, you were. So, um, what was the first? So you grew up in a obviously a family that had just arrived from Iran. Yes. Um, what was the first language you learned? Um, English. Okay. English. So you were brought up quite assimilated. Yes. But the thing is, the most um, important thing that I cherish is that my parents made sure that my sister and I, we have, for us to have a very Persian upbringing. They instilled the cultures within us. The Persian, they taught us everything about uh, the Persian culture, the heritage, and not a year goes by where, for instance, we don't set up the sofa half scene, mm. where we don't um, celebrate Persian holidays. And... Um, to be honest, I'm. I guess I'm getting more fluent in speaking Persian because. Not you're, only, you're totally <laughs> fluent. I've seen you, you do interviews <laughs> with Persian media. Thank you. Well, a mean, lot of practice, yeah, right? I'm, you're better than me, <laughs> and I've got a few years on you. No, you're really good. <laughs> Thank you so but much. But what does it mean to you to be brought up Persian? Like when you say that, besides Noruz and the Sofre, mm-hmm. what what do you really self-identify as a Persian girl? And if so, what what do you think that means? Well, I have a thousand year of history in my bloods and. To be Persian, it's it's important for everybody to value where they're from, where their parents are from. Mm. And a lot of people assume that since I'm born and raised in Canada, they're like, oh, you probably don't know anything about the Persian culture. You probably don't even know how to speak Persian. But that's far from the truth. And I want to inspire youth that even though you may be raised somewhere else, it's important for you to know where your parents are from, to mm. know your own culture, because it's a part of you. It's a part of you. Was it clear to you that you're... Uh, an immigrant kid when you were growing up? Well, yeah, of course. And, um, well, to be honest, um, I've always had this love for the Persian culture as well. Mm. And especially um, because of my sister, she's the one who really introduced it to the Persian culture. She introduced it to the Shahnameh. And ever since this I came Ava, over, your sister. Ava, my sister. 11 How years did you, when did she introduce you to the Shahnameh? Well, I'm not 
I still have a lot to learn, mm-hmm. but this was um, uh, quite a few years back. They introduced she introduced me actually on the Persian New Year to in Persian. Um, like well, have you no. tried reading it? I, I tried, but I cannot read Persian right, at all. <laughs> right, right. So, so she introduced you to it by telling you the stories, or, or? well, yeah, basically telling me about the Shahnameh, and I still, um, I'm still learning a lot, right? Yes. I mean, I'm still learning. Don't worry, I, it's hard to read for me. It's not. <laughs> yeah. It's not. Yeah, I read the cartoon version of the Shahnameh. Really? Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, I can only write my name in Persian if that's enough. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. It's that's a start. Than that's a start. start. Uh, when did you know you wanted to? Well, I, I was the reason I was asking if you felt like an immigrant because um, you know I think we tend to look at people this is no surprise to you mm-hmm. but people who are pageant winners mm-hmm. to put it um, um, just to simplify this and, and, and put you in a box unfortunately right. as uh, having a, having a, an easier time of it somehow. Well, she's beautiful, so uh, she wouldn't have had the difficulties that other immigrant kids have. Uh, what, what would you say to somebody who says that? Well, to be honest, um, I'm thankful to be brought up in a family where they've always supported me and they've always introduced me to the culture. And I'm thankful to be living in a country where I'm given the opportunities um, of of succeeding in life, and I'm given the opportunities to accomplish whatever I want. I'm giving the, I have the freedom of speech, expression, choice, and to be honest. Um, I don't think being a pageant girl or not should even have any say in it. It doesn't matter if you're an athlete or a pageant girl, it's all up to the person themselves. Doesn't make it, you don't think it makes it easier for you that you're a successful pageant person? Well, no, no I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just a regular person, right? When did you know you wanted to compete in karate? Well, let me tell you a story. Tell me a story. So I was a very, very hyperactive child. I would run around the house. I would make so much noise. And <laughs> fun story, actually, funny story. We went to Disneyland when I was five years old, and there was Disneyland in California. No, no, in Florida. In Florida, Disney yeah. World. Yeah. yeah, Disney World. So I went there. There was like these brick buildings, and I began climbing up the actual building because there was dents in the All wall, right. right? My dad literally had to scrape me off the wall. So. They decided, anyways, they decided that I needed an outlet for my excessive energy. So they put me excessive energy <laughs> right, right. a lot. So they put me into. Were you like, um, what, what were you doing with this excess? You were running around the house and like yeah. hitting people or, or. I would make up dances. I would start singing opera out of nowhere. I would <laughs> climb up in between like doorway. I would start mm. climbing up the walls. And um, I would ask someone to go to the park like probably twice a day, thrice a day. And so they put me, um, they signed me up for a few ballet classes mm-hmm. because I like dancing, right? Mm. But it didn't really sit with me. I, I just didn't really enjoy it. Very so different from karate. Very different yeah. from karate. So they made the best decision, in my opinion, to sign me up for karate. And you can imagine I had these two pigtails. I was wearing the smallest sized gi and I was so small that even the smallest gi was dragging on the floor. And I loved the first class. I loved it. My mom came up to me. She was like, do you like it? And I said, I love it. And she asked me if I want to come back. And I said, mm. I have to come back. Wow. So that's where my journey began nearly 12, 13 years later. And um, when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I switched my karate dojos. But before I did, I was competing in inter-dojo competitions mm. and provincial competition. Then I went on to national competition when I was 12 years old or 13 years old. So that time they signed me up at Kanzenkai. Ah, yes. That's where my competitive journey began in you, karate. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you saw the Karate Kid? Oh my gosh, 
really young. I think I was like is it true? 14 it, years old. I mean, is this is like myth making, or uh, is it true that you watched that movie over and over again? I think more than 20 times. <laughs> I am not with lying the, with, with Danielson or with the, with the, the Hillary Swank version. With the Jaden Smith, uh, the the um, Jackie. Oh, the new one. The new one, not the '80s Karate Kid. I've. Well, I think I've watched that once a long time ago. The new one, meaning the one from t- yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah, modern. Oh, wow. Okay, all right. Huh. See, and I still think of the Karate Kid as the, yeah. the 80s. Like, uh, uh, My parents have watched it more than me. Who's now Cobra Kai. You Cobra know that? Kai. Yeah, 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 I haven't yeah. watched that, but I have oh, to. Oh, you have to watch it. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I think before every competition, I watch a Karate Kid movie. Like, it inspires <laughs> me so much. It's like a ritual for me. What makes you, you're obviously a stellar athlete. What uh, I remember um, talking to Nassim Varaste, who, of course, has been on, on the show, the Canadian champion yes. uh, uh, karate kid herself, who is one of your instructors. Yes, or she's yeah, my coach, yes. Your coach, and she yes. speaks so highly of you. Uh, tell me what you think makes you so good in karate. I do not consider myself, you know, to be the best at all like I would never ever um label myself as a champion at all and I still even have though you are a champion I'm not a champion you're yet. not a champion no no what does silver medalist mean well it's you know it's it reminds me of the achievements and it reminds me I still have a long way to go before I reach that gold right okay. and to be named a champion is um it, it means that somebody else has to call you a champion, and I still haven't reached that stage okay. yet. For example, since Nassim Varas is a champion, since Mehran Behnafar is a champion, since Piers Varas is a champion, but I still have a really long way to go right. to ever reach What makes you such a good competitor? Well, <laughs> well <laughs> can I say competitor? Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Um, I think it would be the training. You know, like I said, I've faced so many setbacks. I've done so many trainings. I've faced blood, sweat, and tears. I've experienced it all. And I have a pretty um, different life than other normal teenagers. I've never partied. I hardly hang out with my friends. I My day consists of probably going to physiotherapy, studies, karate, and I wake up at 7 a.m. every morning just to go run outside for one hour to prepare myself. And you really, run outside every day. Yeah, I try my best. To You're an 18-year-old who wakes up at 7 a.m. and runs. I mean, that's it. That's the, That's what it takes, right? It takes, yeah. Uh, I I'm, and so. I assume you want to go to the, the Olympics. Hopefully, if the karate's come back, then who knows? It's Nothing is impossible, right? Um so what what if you could explain i don't know enough about karate to 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 make sense of this so you're gonna have to uh, make it easy for us but what literally while you're fighting while you're doing karate Mm -hmm. are you makes you so good well that's a really good question and i've been i've been trying to improve this and it's my mental preparation i used to think that doing karate going to competition competing fighting it only takes physical strength you just have to be physically prepared and you're set. But you can have an athlete who hardly trains but is so mentally prepared, go against somebody who's so physically prepared but their mental game is at 0%, and the person with the higher mental um, strength, they would win every time. How do you work on mental strength? It, for me, how I work on mental strength is visualizing. It's, um, for instance, I have a playlist with hype songs that would, um, that would really hype me up and pump me up for competition, like Hall of Fame, um, I'm a Champion by Carrie Underwood, just these kind of songs. And I would um, 
before competition, I would just put headphones in and I would just visualize myself in every match. And I used to think that in order to be mentally prepared, you have to think of the gold medal, but that's far from the truth. You have to think of it as one match at a time. It's like in life, you can't expect yourself to, for instance, win something without thinking of every step of mm -hmm. the way. It's like a staircase. You have to go up each step to win, mm -hmm. to reach that final destination. When you've done all that training, when you go mm -hmm. into combat, when you go into a competition, do you let all of that go and just let yourself do what comes naturally or are you constantly mm -hmm. thinking technically about what you should be doing? For sure. Well. Actually, a lot, of how, a lot of it has to do with how much I train. If I know that I've trained enough, then I would ha believe in myself and I would assure myself that, okay, I've put in the training and I'll just have to go compete. I believe in myself. I've done the hard work. I've um, had the injuries, but I'm ready now. So if you train as hard, then you would have that, um, you have that um, determination in yourself that you can uh, perform well. But as long as you put in the training and the hard work, then that's so, enough. So karate captures your imagination as a little kid. Yes. Uh, you, you start training as an athlete. You go into karate. You start achieving success. Uh, it's a pretty full bucket right. to have on your list as well as being a student and doing all the other things that a, a kid does growing up. Where does the, the beauty pageant part come in? Well, um, like I said, ever since I can remember, ever since I've heard about pageants, I wanted to come Miss Canada. But when I actually... Um, why, why did um, you want to become Miss Canada? Because ever since um, with little girls, I guess they always envision themselves as a princess. And mm. you see these girls with crowns and sashes. But when I actually come to understand what pageants were all about, I knew that pageants would give me as a young woman a platform. It would open up so many doors of opportunities. And it would allow me to be seen in society, to be involved more with my community. So when I actually got involved in pageants when I was 14 years old, then I started improving my networking skills. I And it really empowered me. It Does built a 14 year old need, need networking skills? Well, I mean, you gotta start <laughs> You're somewhere. You're amazing, yeah. <laughs> you gotta start somewhere, right? <laughs> well, you certainly did. I mean, you started, <laughs> I mean, were you thinking of that? Oh, I guess so. I gotta work on my networking skills, I'm 14. <laughs> well, uh, it really came to me after pageant, um, after the pageant finished, I was like, oh my gosh, I've gained so many um, more skills. I've, um, for instance, I've improved my public speaking skills. Mm. I've um, I met so many more people and so many, like I said, so many doors of opportunities opened for me that I would have never imagined open for me like um, for instance I had this opportunity to host a TV show where I was mm -hmm. showing destinations all around Toronto. yeah I saw that yeah yeah and then so many more opportunities followed and so I, I I've seen that you obviously you represent Canada in karate and then also in these pageants Correct. Uh, on the face of it they would seem like radically different worlds yeah. are, are they how similar are these two worlds of yours well to be honest Everybody asking that question. I'm sorry, an, I know. No, it's no, a it's cliche an area question, of interest. Yeah. Like it's an area of interest, and of course, to me, um, they're both very different, but they're similar in the sense that they I've gained confidence because of those two. They both give me like a platform to be seen. They both um, improve my self-esteem, and they both empower me in some way. So when you think of pageants, you think about wearing a nice gown, walking in heels, public speaking, you know, advocacy, philanthropic pursuits, and all of that aside. Whereas karate is a martial arts sport where you're going to combat someone, you're fighting someone, you're mm -hmm. fighting an opponent. Mm -hmm. 
But to be honest, although they're very different, there's a huge contrast between those two. They both empower me in the same way. And I Which would say- Which is what way? I would say build, building my self-esteem, mm. um, building my confidence. And um, to be honest, I always consider myself an athlete first. And everything that I've achieved in pageantry, I think platform gave me those building blocks. Sorry, um, karate gave me those building blocks mm. when entering into pageants. Is there any way that the pageantry, what do I call it? Pageant, pageants, yeah. Pageants, do, do the pageants help you in karate? Well, I wouldn't say so. No. I would say mostly karate helped me oh, in pageants, pageants, right? Are you the same person? <laughs> I know that, I, I know you're, I mean, obviously you are, uh -huh. but is, are, do you feel like you're channeling different sides of yourself or do you at the pageant mm -hmm. think that I'm at uh, the karate competitor and, and yeah. similarly in, in karate you think I'm at uh, the, the pageant entrant? Yeah, I would say so because I remember going to pageants, all the girls would call me cute because I was the smallest, I was the youngest. And inside I was burning up. I'm like, I'm not cute. And I was, and I'm so competitive, no matter if it's in pageants or in karate. I had that same mentality, like same mentality of winning, of competing. And in fact, for my talent portion of uh, in the pageants, I did this martial art act. And I could see from the look on the judges' face, they were terrified. <laughs> They're like, this small girl, like, are you serious? But I love introducing pa um, karate um, in the pageant world to the judges because it was something new to them. So I think that really um, put like a big impression on the judges when they see, oh look, this girl does karate and pageants, right? You've called yourself small a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, you are, you're a diminutive person, mm -hmm. which uh, I know is okay in karate because I've seen the karate kid. Yeah. But the little one always beats up everybody else by the, the end, time. right? Yeah, <laughs> but in pageants, I have this stereotypical idea mm -hmm. of tall people, you, you know, uh, competing, and and I, I don't know why. Is I am I making yeah. that up, or no, is that usually no, true? No, that's completely so, true. So so you're small in general yeah. in, in these fields. How yeah. has that affected you in these in in competitions on, in both worlds? Well, in karate, like you said, I guess um, heights didn't really make a difference. It was. I, to be honest, it didn't really make a difference for me. It benefited me in a way because I would usually go with girls that are taller and I would just, you know, I was faster than them in some way because I'm shorter. But in, um, in terms of pageants, when I say small, I mean both age-wise, like I was always the youngest, an international pageant, national pageant, and I was literally the smallest. Like I lost against the girl who was like five foot nine, for instance. But I never let this get in the way because um, we see pageants as like a beauty pageant for where the tallest girls usually have, um, they're the most successful in pageants. But when I went into the pageant, when I competed, I think I sort of broke this stereotype, this view, because a lot of people came up to me and a lot of people messaged me saying, you're too short to, you know, to win a pageant. How, is, how does that go? Did you pay your way? Like, did you pay or something? I, yeah, a lot of people asked me that and I said, no. Is it true that people who win are normally taller? Yeah, usually, mm -hmm. yeah. And I just tell them I never paid. I just, I guess the judges really like my personality. I, I was really, I had a lot of charisma on stage. I showed a lot of confidence. And I think I proved to the judges that height, physical attributions, they don't determine one's success. Mm -hmm. Someone's mentality, someone's characteristics, someone's personality determines their mm -hmm. success. I think I sort of removed those stereotypes in some way. And I hope I did. 
you really like to win. You really want to win. I do. <laughs> you want to win. You want to win everything. Yeah, but be... I but um I don't always win. That's okay. The truth. No, but I have but to you want to win, right? right? Yeah. How how disciplined do you have to be? I mean, you were telling me earlier that you had to watch what you eat to stay in a certain right. weight class. Uh, it's not. It can't be easy being in either of these worlds, right? You have to exactly. sort of not not to mention the discipline of being in great shape and uh, being sure. ready to perform on stage and the pageants and all of that. How disciplined do you feel like your life is? Well, I've I've grown up um, you know, very disciplined. Doing karate teaches the students respect and teaches them to be disciplined. And to be honest, for instance, I I'm so competitive in the way that I don't always think about winning. I just think about proving to others how um, all my potential. Mm. I want to prove to others that I can and I will. You, If you underestimate me, I'm gonna prove to you how, what I can do. And for instance, in pageants, all the girls will wake up at 7 a.m. But for me, I will wake up at 5 a.m. two hours beforehand because I want to get ready and I just, in some way, I want to prepare myself beforehand. Um, here's a really interesting story that not many people know, but in my first, um, when I was going to compete in my first national tournament for karate, I had to be under 36 kilos, and I was a few kilos, I think I was like two kilos over, and a month was left to competition, I remember, I would go to my sound mom. like a lot, how many pounds is that? Yeah, I'm not sure in pounds, but it's, right now I'm like 50 kilos, so like, oh. imagine 36, and I was 12, wow. 13, you yeah. were really small. Right, yeah, I was yeah. really small. And I would, uh, my mom came with me to um, to the gym and I would go on the treadmill every day. I would work out and imagine I was 12 or 13 back hmm. then. But, you know, mentally I, I told myself, you know, this is my first national tournament. If I'm going to achieve greatness, then I have to put in the work. This applies to any athlete. Wow. You told anyways, yourself this at the age of 12. Yeah, you know, Amazing. I, yeah, and... Um, I remember the song that kept repeating on our playlist was The Eye of the Tiger. So imagine how pumped up I was. And it The also, 80s version or some new version the that 80s you found version. with <laughs> Jaden Smith or something? No, nothing beats uh, okay, the old all right, one. Okay, all right, the old one. All yeah, right. and anyways, um, I had to go on a strict <laughs> diet and it was my birthday a week prior to competition. So my mom got me a cupcake, okay? I was only allowed to look at it and eat it. And let me tell you, my parents didn't force me at all. They told me, Matt, you don't have to do this, but... I told them, you know, I want to do this. You know, this is my dream, my goal, and my passion. Mm. I'm going to put Although it on the they were the thrilled work. you were not running around the house anymore and not <laughs> freaking everybody out with your extra energy, right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you can say that. You can do say you, that. How much of a normal, quote unquote, I mean, who has a normal life these days, mm, but yeah. how much of a normal teenager can you be if you're waking up early? I'm assuming mm. you still go to school, right? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. So you have, So you have school, you have karate you have tournaments you have pageants um do you can you hang out at the mall for an afternoon do you go to movies do you have a any kind of social life well my version of normal is waking up at 7 a.m mm -hmm. um so i'm just going to physio um doing school work going to karate classes and sometimes i would um attend charities and all of that side even if i have time um I really wouldn't hang out with people as much because in my spare time, I just like to spend time with my family because I don't really have that much time, that much to spare. Mm. So that time that I have to spare, I would spend time with my family because they're literally my best friends. 
But sometimes, of course, I would go to the mall. Maybe once every month, once every two months, and I was sometimes it's too much. It's once too every much. two months, it's just too How much. How dare for you? Me. How dare I? I know I have to be more disciplined. But <laughs> yeah, the lack of discipline you're showing by going oh, to the sorry. mall once every two months. Wow, well, that's it's not easy being you. It's not I mean, easy. making these decisions. Do you have moments where you sort of go? Jesus, why did I? Why am I doing all of this? Why don't I just be eat McDonald's and you know mm-hmm. hang out with like other people do and yeah. uh, get a boyfriend? I don't know, whatever, <laughs> right? Honestly, I have those moments a lot, but I keep reminding myself, you know, you can spend your days doing that. You'd be like an average teenager, or you can continue down the road that you're going. Because I told myself the reason why I'm able to achieve the this these successes is because I put in the work is because I was so disciplined and it's mm. because I made sacrifices I sacrificed so much time so much energy so much effort I even sacrificed friendships with people because it didn't work out mm. so that's the kind of a life that I have and the people that I usually hang out with are like-minded people and I don't really have that much time to you know go to the mall and stuff. It's really disciplined. It's Let me ask you this as, a, as an Iranian mm-hmm. girl. And I uh, obviously people like Nassim uh, who've come before you have broken these kind of um, barriers or stereotypes. But um, we recently had a woman named Pani Kionzad on the show mm-hmm. who's a, she is a champion, but she's in UFC, oh, MMA. Wow. Uh, wow. And she's based in stock in, in Sweden. That's amazing. And, um, and she grew up in Iran, not like uh, you, you've grown up in the West. Or she grew up in, uh, in Iran half the time and then moved to Sweden. Okay. Okay. Um, she said on her journey it's been difficult at times because there are Iranians who judge girls who go into this kind of... Now, she's karate might be more honorable, I don't know, than MMA or something. But, mm-hmm. but um, have you faced any of that where they sort of go, why don't you be a nice Persian girl and, and go study engineering or do something like that rather than getting involved in these kind of sports, et cetera? For sure, especially on social media. Now we're living in the age of social media where people can... They have no filter. And... They would just uh, express hate. They would spew hate. They would start attacking me um, for no apparent reason. Maybe because, um, I don't know, because they don't like seeing young uh, Iranian girls succeed and to be seen in society. But of course, I've, I receive a lot of hate, a lot of cyberbullying. And to me, I, I have very dear appreciation and love for the Persian um, nation. But to be honest, I was quite culture shocked when uh, a lot of is Iranian it usually people, Iranians who are doing the bullying? Yeah, yeah. Huh? And but what, let me what, tell you, the majority of the Iranians are so supportive. They're yes. so kind. But there's yeah. a few bad apples out there. And wh- you know when did I mean. that begin? That began, I think, uh, before my birthday at the beginning of this year. Oh, just this year. Yeah. This and year. what I did, was what, did what do they say? Well, they started relating me to this person. Um, that I wasn't even related to at all. And they kept making these assumptions. Oh, that you achieve this certificate in karate because you're connected to this person uh, or because you paid. Uh, but this is far from the truth. And like I said, we're living in the era of technology where um, people hide behind anonymous profiles online. They start to send these horrible messages to mm-hmm. me. I remember receiving hundreds of messages from people. And my parents had to take over my social media for a few months. A few months, I know. Hundreds of messages. Yeah. Hmm. 
I mean, everybody gets trolled online these yeah. days, especially if you're making a name for mm-hmm. yourself. But that's a lot. Yeah, like messages, and including for a, comments. A kid, and, or yeah. somebody under the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, to be honest, when I went into the Canadian media, none of this happened. I didn't receive any hate. People were so supportive. But it was when I started giving Persian interviews that I started receiving hate. How does that make you feel? Well, to be honest, I know that if you want to achieve something, that there are going to be naysayers. There are going to be people that try to put a cap on your dreams either way. But all I ever did was just ch- was to just keep pushing forward. And a really important lesson that my mom taught me was it's this lesson of an eagle and a crow. A crow always tries to peck an eagle. They try to nug, nug them. They try to um, distract them. But what an eagle does is remarkable. They just keep flying higher and higher, so high until the point where the crow falls off their back. So I try to keep that same mentality in life. I become more resilient, I become more uh, stronger ever since this happened because I keep telling myself, this is only the beginning of my journey. I still have a long way to go. And unfortunately, I'm not the only one who's a victim of you know bullying or being attacked online. So many successful Iranians have been attacked online. Did it ever make you want to give up? At times, of course, like at times it really had a toll on my family and I, like mentally and everything. But I told myself, you know, you can either let these haters celebrate your downfall or you can just keep pushing forward mm. and show them who you are. Just stay resilient, that's the way stay persevering. Uh, that's it. Exactly. Young, young Jedi, keep going. Keep going, uh, like uh, the Karate Kid, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know which, which version of the Karate Kid anymore, <laughs> but all of them, I'm sure. All they, of them, keep yeah. going is the mantra. Um, you, you, you mentioned earlier in this interview, you said blood, tears, and sweat, and, and, sweat and haters. Um, we just talked about the haters. Mm-hmm. Um, have there been tears? For sure, for sure. Well, do you mean from this incident or generally from training? Generally, when do you cry? Of course, I cry when I'm stressed out. I cry when I get an injury. And it's normal, I'm a human being, right? Everybody faces these um, blood, sweat, and tears. And for me, um, injuries are inevitable in karate, for instance. And I've cried so many times. Um, I remember... um, getting the silver medal um, in nationals, I cried because I told myself I trained so hard. But I kept telling myself, you know, I you cried because you didn't get the gold? Yeah, because I said so much. Isn't silver amazing? It is, but I set such high expectations for myself. Mm. And this was um, silver previously because mm. this tournament, I accepted it. I was going against some, a really tough out- component. And I was proud of myself. Mm. But before that, I, um, I was upset because I set such high standards for myself, which is okay, mm. but as sometimes you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't expect too much in the sense that if you don't achieve it, you're going to be disappointed in yourself. Well, that's the thing. When you're as ambitious as you are, mm-hmm. that's the other side of the coin that I would worry about. You've said, many times I have allowed the fear of failure mm-hmm. to get in the way of attaining my desired results. Yes. So you can almost feel paralyzed by the concern that you're not gonna win. Exactly. Yeah, and the fear of failure, that's my biggest fear. And I'm still learning to accept failure. Where did that come from? I mean, where does this desire to to not fail, to win, Mm -hmm. how do you think, where did that get instilled in you? Well, like I said, I have a very competitive mindset, and it 
Are your, are your parents like that? No, my parents, well, they liked it. They wanted to see me achieve. But if I don't achieve, then they're always the ones telling me, Mata, it's okay. They don't say it's you better get the gold or, or no, no game no, for no, you tonight? No, not at it? all. Not at all. Not hmm. at all. They do push me in the sense that I know you can do so much better. But if you get the gold, don't worry. They're so supportive in that sense. They're my biggest support system. And they told me, you know, if you don't get the gold, then it's okay. You know what to improve. You have to accept these failures because... Um, another important quote that I learned is you either win or learn you never lose so you have to learn from our failures because the failures are the ones that they're the building blocks they're the ones that enable us to become better in order for us to um, get one step ahead in life and to become better versions of ourselves let me ask you about the support of your family you've yes. talked about it you mentioned it a couple of times yes. but um, between Ava, your sister, who's 11 years older than yes. you, um, who helped us organize this interview, yes. interview, and your mom. I saw you and your mom recently at an event, and mm -hmm. I was actually saying to you and your mom that um, I can tell that your family has been supportive because yes. in my experience, nobody who is as successful as you've been mm -hmm. um, and is reaching as high as you are at, at a young age, and I'm talking about when you were 15 years old, et cetera, right. Um, without the support, encouragement, mm -hmm. uh, enabling of your parents. I mean, you certainly, I can't imagine your parents were the kind saying, okay, do you leave karate behind? No, you need no, to get no. your engineering degree never, first never. and then try sports or something. <laughs> um, so t tell me about the support you received. Well, I think I'm behind every accomplishment I receive is because I have a very strong support system. And I always say everything that I achieve is because we have a whole team. I have a whole team behind my back. They're the pillars in my life. Um, when I say support system, I never mean financially. I mean because I have supportive parents, uh, a very, very supportive sister. My mom is my super mom. There hasn't been a place in the world where she hasn't traveled with me. She's very protective. She comes everywhere. Everywhere. Karate and pageants. Everywhere. Right. Everywhere. I've never gone anywhere alone. Um, she is very protective, but in a good sense. Mm. And honestly... Never um, gets frustrating having mom never. around? No, I mean... Well, I mean, she's here, so yeah, I, yeah, never. maybe you, you don't feel <laughs> comfortable saying something. No, no, but, no. But I mean, isn't there time when it's like, mom, give me... I'm, I want to talk to Tommy. Give me a, give me a second here. You well, know? I mean, she knows. She knows the boundaries, right? <laughs> okay. She knows. What are the boundaries? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> for instance, in competition, uh -huh. I have I always switch um, my mindset. I'm like, okay, nobody talks to me. I have to be in my zone. And she respects that. Mm. And I can see her from the stands. She's more stressed out than I am. She's like, Mata, do you have your stuff? Do you have your gear? <laughs> I'm like, yes, mom, relax. You're more stressed than me. Relax. Is your mom an athlete? No, no. It's amazing. She did, she did sports when she was younger, uh -huh. but she's not an athlete now. And Ava is 11 years older than you. Yes. Yeah, you guys seem to have an amazing relationship. Very. She she is my best friend. She's like a second mom and when I tell you that I wouldn't achieve anything if it wasn't for my sister because she's my role model. She guides me. And in fact, we have a few projects coming up where we are writing a book together, two books together. What? Yeah. Two books. Yeah. Right, because you can't just write one book. Yeah. In your case, it has to be two. It has to be two. What, what are the books about? Can well, you tell us? Well, of course, one of them is like a child's book. Another one, we're writing a fantasy novel. And we had this idea ingrained into our minds for a few years now. And my sister, um, she did a lot of, she wrote a lot of poetry. She poetry when she was younger. She was a radio TV host when she was like 10 years old, but she was younger. <laughs> and she's also, can we bring her in? If you want. Ava, yeah. come on in, come on in. 
Come on, come on. I want to ask her what she what she. What, we don't. We can can we get a chair for? <laughs> so if you could just sit sit right next to to Mata, like, as close as possible, sit next to her. Sure. That's okay, Shaja. Merci, merci. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so a- Ava has walked into the studio. <laughs> <Woo>. <laughs> I'm taken off guard, but thank you. You're taken off guard. Well, are you okay? Are you okay yeah, to talk to? Okay, okay. So talk right into the microphone there. We need to just, cl- yeah, here. Let's move this slightly there. there. So just lean right in, Wendy. So um, first of all, uh, Matt has been talking about the incredible support she gets from you. What, what's it like? I'm incredibly proud of her. You, you must be proud of her. Yes, when did g- Give us your perspective on when you first realize that she's this wonder kid in terms of her athletic abilities? Well, uh, it's been clear from the start. Mata, uh, obviously, as she said, uh, she had a strong support system, but the talent was there, the potential was there. And right off the start, I knew she was, well, it sounds too wing to say different, but as a sister, as an even an outsider looking in, she was a different kid. She wanted more out of life than any normal kid would, and she thought uh, 100 steps ahead instead of thinking 10 steps ahead. And uh, she had the vision, she had the dream, and she had the potential. So it was just up to us to, uh, to cherish it, to nourish it, and to let her thrive and strive in life. It's 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 funny because when there's ten years or more difference, oftentimes the siblings they might love each other, but they don't they don't have much in common, or they feel sort or of, there may be rivalries, or there might be rivalries. Yeah. Tell me about that. I don't see her. I mean, um, I see her more as a mother than a sister. But she's my best friend. Yeah, we are sisters. We're best friends. We uh, the dynamic is more of a, a best friend relationship than a sister relationship. She trusts me. She um, whenever I tell her, oh, this is the wrong path. This is the right path, or choose this instead of that. She allows me. She uh, she allows me to interfere and to sort of guide her along the way, along the path. And I'm so incredibly proud of her because uh, obviously as you can see she's reached those milestones and uh, you're not competitive Did, uh, do you do karate no, no 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 I don't do any sports I used to swim but no <laughs> not in the sense that matters uh, and what do you do if you don't mind me asking uh, I write and you write uh, yes I'm a biology student but aside from the studies it's I, it's always been in me uh, to one day achieve the dream of being a published author okay. I don't know if that dream's coming true but I take it as a sign that standing here in front of me I'm sitting here in front of you. Uh, it's uh, it's a milestone. Yeah, to announce and that she yes. can teach you something about discipline if you need to know she how to how to focus. Uh, truly, Gian, I <laughs> learn a lot from her. It doesn't matter that she's. Uh, 11 years younger than me but I learned a lot from her because she's uh, she's a special girl and she she's very mature for Thank her age so yeah. how, how do you I mean I it's hard for Matt to answer this when I was saying why are you so good at karate why are you so successful etc what 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 is it I mean you you're with her all the time and, and you've I'm you're you've been with her since the beginning literally uh, what do you think it is about her that um, has has catapulted her to all of this um I, I want to say success but all just this this prominence in in a in in a really wholesome way I mean uh at uh, a young age well it's a combination of many things she's a very well-rounded individual uh, she 
obviously, as I said, the strong support system, but uh, either you, uh, some people have the talent, they don't have the support system. Some people have the support system and the financial means, but they don't have the talent. But for her, it's a combination of talent, of potential, and uh, of a strong family and obviously coaches behind her that support her all the way. So I believe, and of course, uh, the determination is there, as she said, and perseverance and not taking failures as a setback, but more of a setup to her uh, reaching her goals. And she's always anchored to hope and faith. And uh, she's a very faithful and uh, determined girl. What's her biggest challenge? Is it the fear of failure thing? Yeah. In my opinion? In your opinion. Yeah, definitely fear of failure, yes. Before, when she was younger, it was really challenging for her to uh, accept failure. And many times she would... um, you know, put herself down, cry a lot, kind of distance herself from the rest of us, mm. and she would become distant. But now I've seen a huge difference. I've seen a spark in her. It's like um, she's changed so much. She's changed mm. so much in a better way. She's improved, and I'm definitely proud of that. What are you? What are you most proud of in terms of uh, uh, Mata? I'm proud of being her sister. Mm-hmm. Just that. I'm proud of her. I'm truly proud of her. I mean. It's coming from the heart. I I cannot be more proud of a sister than I am sitting right here. I get emotional talking about it. But she's she's absolutely, she's um, an angel. She's an angel. My sister's an angel. Wow, look at you two. Thank you. Yes, I love you. (laughs) That's the sweet. How do you feel when you hear all of this? Honestly, I feel like I've accomplished a huge milestone because if um, my parents are proud of me, my sister's proud of me, proud of me, then I know that I've accomplished a lot in life, and that's all I want to do is to bring honor not to myself but to my family as well. Um, I, I, this is you, you know it's really really beautiful hearing all this. You you we talked about the haters, yes. but there are, I'm sure a small mm-hmm. uh, sample size of of, yeah, of the yeah. larger feedback yes, that you get. For sure. um, how how does it feel to get? First of all, how does it feel uh, as a as a kid of the diaspora myself? Like when I hear from people who are in Iran, mm-hmm. it really touches me. I think, wow, like somebody in Iran is, in my case, listening to this content and wanting to interact and say they're enjoying Mm -hmm. it or something. How does it feel for you to have fans on the other side of the world in a country that is of your ancestry but that you didn't even grow up in? Right. It's rewarding. It's rewarding in the sense that I know that the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm accomplishing, that this is making an impact in other people's lives aside from myself. And unfortunately... um, as we know, the women living in Iran, they don't have the same opportunities as I don't. They don't have the freedom, the freedom of speech, expression, of choice. And I said this before, but there's a cap on their dreams and they're limited to how far they can dream. And this pains me. But now that I'm being recognized as representative of the Iranian girls and Iranian women, then this means the world to me. And I do whatever I can to not only bring honor to us Canadians, but to an entire nation as well, to the Persian people. And the th- I think this is the biggest milestone ever uh, ever achieved in life, mm. is to be a voice of those who can't be heard. Is there a particular, um, can you share a particular message or letter or something or feedback you've received or somebody who met you in person that really moved you? Of course, you? there's this little girl, I'm not gonna say her name, but there's this little girl, her mom messaged me on Instagram, I think it was a few weeks ago. She said, hi Matt, I'm not sure if you're gonna read this, but my daughter, um, she wants to sign up into karate and she wants to know your opinion. She And it would be really great if you could talk to her, if you could send her a voice message just to like, you know, motivate her. 
And I said, and I told my sister, my mom, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that these little girls will look up to me. It means the world to me. So I sent her voice message telling her, you know, I believe in you. As long as you believe in yourself, then you can achieve your dreams and go for it. That's all I have to say. Go for it. I believe in you. Now it's time for you to believe in yourself. She had her white belt. And she actually sent me a picture. She got her white belt. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. She did a little Where karate is she? pose. Is she in She's Canada? in Iran. She's in Iran. Yeah. So wow. that's why it means the world to me because I received a couple of messages, but um, this one was quite recent. And she sent me a picture and she sent me a voice message saying, Mata, I did it. I did it. And I was in tears. She was crying. It's beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. Uh, where? Uh, um, how old was the kid? She was like, I don't know, five years old, four years old. She and was, in Tehran or where? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think in Tehran, yeah. Mm. She was so she was so young and so sweet. Um. I, I read somewhere that uh, I, I'm going to ask you about your future plans before we finish. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know that one one future plan is to become the world champion. Hopefully, right? yes. Right. When do we do, when do we want to become the world champion by? Hopefully this year. I this mean, year. Hopefully, I mean, anytime sooner. The sooner I like the how better. Ava's like answering the question for you. <laughs> it's year, like this year, right this now. Year, right now. Because <laughs> it's coming up. The world championships is every two years for juniors, and it's coming up in October. So we'll see how it goes. But of course, in no the pressure. long term. No yeah, pressure. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. 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 pressure. Yeah. 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 If I can dream it, I can achieve it. So why not? And aside from karate, hopefully uh, going further along. And as for pageants, I want to compete in the Miss Division, hopefully. And so it's which division? In Miss Division. So I always What's competed that? in the teenage division. I see. Okay. Yeah, and that's adult division. So I 18 see. and up. All yeah. right. And for studies, I hopefully want to become a lawyer. And um, I want to, of course, become a published author with my sister. Right. And I want you and just acting as well. I heard yes. about acting. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's what, still what? in the works, but <laughs> she's gonna make her debut the, soon. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, is that I, I actually believe she's gonna achieve all these things. So the lawyer. If <laughs> you believe joke, in me, then it's a joke, Matha. Tell him. Hmm? You want to become what? Oh yeah, and I also want to become a prime minister. Oh, that's, oh. That's I'm joke. just kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> that why is that a joke? I don't know. It's Honestly, probably not as hard, hard as becoming the world champion of karate. I mean, with the discipline you have, you could easily become the prime minister. I mean, anyone can if anybody puts in the work. Yes. If they have the potential, then of course. Do it. Lawyer, karate <laughs> champ, pageant winner, prime minister. Who knows? It's not Who a knows? bad CV. Who knows? Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you so Congratulations on all that Thank you've accomplished. You. I can't wait to do this every couple of years and see where you've um, yes. you've uh, reached. And hopefully by this October, you'll be okay with me calling you a champion. Oh my goodness. Really depends. If you find me, if you consider me a champion, then I, then that would be the world to me. But I still have a long way to go before I ever reach people's level of greatness. Accepted. You're a champion. Yeah. <laughs> Accepted. Okay, if you say so. Uh, do you call her a champion? <laughs> yes, of course. Oh, okay. She oh, doesn't so call herself a champion. She, well, but I kind of like that. Humble. I do like that, yeah. though. She's like, no, I got to yeah. win the big prize. I got to be the big dog yeah, before I. Sure. Uh, and Ava, thank you for thank coming you in so here. Thank you so much for having me. It's it took been, me off guard, but I'm truly, truly happy. You did great. This. Even though you're a mile away from the microphone. You, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear now, me now? Now we can. <laughs> we heard most of it. Uh, uh, do you guys ever disagree? Yeah, of course. Ah, please you know, t- tell we're me. Sisters. Tell at me. The I don't. End it's too day. idyllic right now. Uh, we fight over the couch. Yeah. And what does that she mean? Doesn't Who gets like to, to sit on the couch? <laughs> yeah, Very I mean, I'm typical I, stuff. Typical teenage. Uh, Don't you have authority? You're most no, sensitive. No, she's the boss. She runs the house. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> 
her guard goes up, her karate guard. When <laughs> yeah. I say something. Actually, now like, that I think about it, Mato's got a pretty good situation here. Yeah, she's she got the does. whole family yeah. working for her. Yeah. She's, uh, she <laughs> no, gets the couch. But we do it with and, love. We do it with love. Right. And obviously, it's a group You effort. can imagine we disagree over something. And the next minute, I message her, do you want some popcorn? And she's like, yeah. Yeah, we don't take ourselves too Never. seriously. Never. So it, Nassim's your coach. Yes. So uh, Nassim Varaste, who we mentioned. So she's the coach. W- uh, d- and also Sensei Mehran Okay. Yeah. So all of these people yeah. have to agree on things? I mean, yeah. is there, there's like a little committee of people around you. Yes, yes. Well, so, <laughs> what, 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 do you ever disagree with your with the advice that's given? Well, or are you pretty I good do, at it? I do, but I know that if I'm getting advice from more experienced people, from more wiser people, like Sensei Mehran Behran Far, Sensei Nassim Varaste, then I know that I should agree with them because A, like I said, they have more experience, and B, they know what's better for me. So I have to learn to accept. That's part of life, right? I have to learn to accept. Congrats again. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for being so much. here. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us, Mr. Gian. Like I said, we're avid fans of you and your work. Definitely. Oh, my God. I'm a huge fan. I can't believe it. We listen to all your podcasts. That's yeah. really <laughs> sweet. That's, uh, that's, I mean, you're a legend. You guys are, uh, okay. All right. Don't call me a legend. I haven't become no, the, I haven't got a gold no, medal yet. Actually, I have got a gold medal. You're absolutely <laughs> the best interviewer out there, and Thank there's you. no doubt, uh, one of the best in the world. And people study you in universities, and you know that, right? So, never been a karate champion, though. And you can be winner. a champion in anything <laughs> you like. Exactly. You are a legend. Thank you. Thank you for having yeah. us. Bye-bye. It means the world to us, Mr. Dion. Thank you so much. Mato Karai, uh, an Iranian-Canadian athlete, multiple medalist in the sport of karate. She joined me here in the Rook studio uh, with her sister, Ava, today. My next guest today is a distinguished Iranian-Canadian journalist, cartoonist, and blogger who first came to public attention in a big way for one of his cartoons known as Ostad Temsah, gently mocking Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi, a nuanced and smart cartoon that triggered the protest of thousands of clergymen in different cities in Iran. Nikohang Kosad has been a leading Iranian cartoonist and a familiar face and voice for many Iranians inside and outside of Iran for many years. He was born and raised in Tehran. He studied geology at the University of Tehran and then went on to work as a popular cartoonist in numerous magazines and newspapers such as Golaga and Hamshahri. In recent years, Nick has been increasingly also recognized for his commitment to addressing the crisis of water scarcity in Iran. He's a regular presence on BBC Persian, Iran International, and Radio Farda, where he talks about water issues and the dysfunction of the Iranian regime when it comes to water. Nick Ohang also runs a website called abanganiran.org, which specializes in covering Iran's water crisis. He's a member of the board of directors of Cartoonists' Rights Network International, CRNI, and a former winner of CRNI's International Award for Courage and Editorial Cartooning, and right now, Nick Ohang, Nick Kosar, joins me from Washington, D.C. today. Hello, sir. Hello, Gian. Very nice to have you on the program. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks. Uh, nice to be with you on this wonderful show. 
I, you know, I want to talk to you about the water crisis um, and so much of what you've been talking about recently. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a bit about your story and um, and your years as a cartoonist as well. You have been outspoken about the water situation in, in Iran of late, and you have been for many years. For those who came to know you as a cartoonist, um, they may be surprised to see you as a researcher, journalist, pundit around water issues on various TV programs, but I'm guessing for you, it all comes from the same place in you, yes? It does, it does. Look, uh, I was born into a family that had connections to water. My father uh, is a watershed management expert, he's a well-known scientist, and I learned a lot of things from him. And uh, if it weren't because of him, I, I wouldn't have actually moved toward geology and i learned a lot from him and worked on the ground in iran even before going to college but i also have a mother who's an artist Mm. and i uh, learned how to draw from her and uh, the combination of these two became that i i didn't go to watershed management but i became a geologist and i didn't become a painter i became a cartoonist so (laughs) it's a sort of mutation A gentle, a beautiful mutation. Uh, uh, Well, that makes sense because um, given your lineage, as you were talking about your dad, I was thinking that the Bachelor of Science degree at University of Tehran in the late 80s, early 90s, geology makes sense. But then how do you get into political satire and cartooning? What about the activist side? So dad's the scientist, mom's the, the artistic side, that mutation. What about the desire to want to speak out or comment? Um, it actually started when I was um, studying geology. I had a, a couple of professors who looked like dinosaurs, and I wanted to draw them, but this is a joke. Um, in 1990, I bought a collection of caricatures of David Levine, the famous artist who used to work for the New York Review of Books. And I thought of those drawings, those illustrations as something very powerful that could show the soul of people through lines. And I started uh, drawing portraits using Levine's techniques, but also uh, his point of view towards people with different backgrounds. I thought that it it was something like searching for the souls of people through um, satirical drawing. And a couple of Weeks later, after I had started drawing caricatures of individuals, um, I was participating in a conference, in in an international conference, and I drew the portraits of a number of um, famous scientists. And a friend of mine actually got my drawings, and then they showed all my, uh, if you can call them artwork, um, at the... uh, final presentations of the um, conference. And from that moment, I was introduced as a cartoonist, or as we say in Iran, caricaturist. Mm. I took it seriously, and I started drawing caricatures of my professors, the dinosaurs. And just a few months after that, I got a call from the Golaga magazine. That was the top satirical magazine in the country. Yes. And and they hired me. And it's really funny that just being a geology student who was interested in satirical arts, I turned into a professional cartoonist in just less than a year. And then after that, I 
became an editorial cartoonist working for newspapers and so hang on a second I, let, let me let me, let me yeah. there's a lot there let me get two steps back first sure. of all you said at one point um if you could it, uh, it was art if you can call it that do you think of what you do as art i i, I would say so uh, I, i'm talking about my my own work because um those fuzzy cartoons that i used to draw weren't that artistic at the beginning what about now um i've i've quit cartooning for a long time for about six or seven years for uh, an easy situation called fibromyalgia but uh yeah i've done some artistic work and i've won a number of uh international and national awards for them but i always consider my myself a student of art not an artist hmm. i use art to present my ideas well the, the okay so that's a good segue into the the question i wanted to ask so there you are at the age of 22 working for Golaga, uh magazine and after that you you um get these other gigs as a as you say as an editorial cartoonist i wonder in the beginning you know i've i've had the occasion to interview uh, some prominent cartoonists iranian and non-iranian over the years and and there seems to be two schools some who um uh, like taking um, um, jabs and doing great caricaturing or or making statements, but distinctly don't want to, in general, take a political position. And then others who really um, wish to be advocates and use their cartooning as such. Did you have any kind of particular mission when you started? Um, I wanted to kick ass, in simple words. I wanted to... Uh, be a pain in the backside of politicians. I wanted to um, be a voice to the voiceless. And through that, I was successful in some occasions and unsuccessful in a lot of occasions. And um, one thing was that uh, I needed to learn many things from the people, my, from my own audiences. So, um, that's why I, I really believe that we should remain being students of art and students of communication and learn from our uh, own readers because uh, they have a lot to say. And, and, I, and I got many of my ideas from my conversations uh, with those people. But, but I'm thinking that you probably, there was some moment where you realized you're, the, the, you had this kind of eureka moment or something where you thought, I could write a 5,000-word essay um, or I could make something. Well, there weren't podcasts back then, but uh, some sort of equivalent of that. But in drawing a cartoon, I can get my ideas across that this is a, a, a platform that can be um, wildly powerful in terms of bringing consciousness to the general public. It, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there were moments, those eureka moments, that I actually did some cartoons that were very painful to the um, judiciary, to the government, to the even um, guardian council. And um, I wasn't aware of the danger and the danger zone I was entering. One of my cartoons actually caused a lot of trouble before the uh, presidential elections in 1997, when uh, Muhammad Khatami was running for office. A number of my friends actually told me to um, get away from Tehran for a couple of days 
because I had made fun of the Guardian Council and its choices and uh, the newspaper hadn't censored my cartoon and the Guardian Council actually reacted to my cartoon. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that such a powerful body was actually um, reacting to just a funny small cartoon published on a, let's say on the third page of the newspaper. So. Well, how, how were you not aware that that was going to happen? <laughs> I mean, when you say uh, when you say I wanted to kick ass, um, it, let's put it in context. It's not easy to kick ass in terms of political satire in a country that is famously, um, I mean, even before the revolution, but certainly after the revolution of 1979, um, suppressive and repressive when it comes to political dissent. Uh, you must have known that you were going to have to be sensitive doing this. But it's it's how you deal with a with a dog. If it's a Chihuahua or or a Doberman Pinscher, I was <laughs> thinking of playing with a, a Chihuahua, but I kicked a Doberman Pinscher that was very that was rabid as well. So I've made my own mistakes many times. So I'm not I'm not sad actually for those mistakes. I'm here sitting in front of you talking about them, and if I hadn't made those decisions, I would I would have been somewhere else. Well, you were very courageous, right? I mean, your your famous cartoon, I mentioned it in the uh, introduction, Professor Crocodile, uh, led and to... that's why I wear Lacoste. <laughs> right. The, I'm sure the brand of appreciation works for, no. on their side. Uh, this led to death threats. It led to your arrest, your imprisonment in, in February of 2000. Uh, how, how did you find the courage to keep pushing buttons after going through these kinds of episodes? I have to tell you the story about that because it has a weird twist. Um, in the summer of 1999, I uh, when th there was the student movement in Tehran, and uh, I, I drew a number of cartoons. Some of them were published, some of them were not. So, so I kept some sketches. One of them was because the main topic of the day was uh, the uh, media law that was supposed to get some amendments and the amendments were actually going to censor any sort of critique of the regime so one of the cartoons one of the sketches i did was like this crocodile that, that's shedding crocodile tears and um, wants to strangle the journalist and saying that oh this journalist is is actually putting me under a lot of pressure mm. So it was the reality was it, it was vice, vice versa. So I kept the sketch, but I never published it. But then when in uh, late January, uh, Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi went to the Friday prayers and in some other speeches um, alleged that there was a chief CIA operative in Tehran with a suitcase full of U.S. dollars to bribe Iranian journalists against Islam, I thought, oh, this sounds good. And because his last name, Mesbah, rhymed with Crocodile, Temsaw, so Crocodile Tears actually made sense over here. So I called the Crocodile, Professor Crocodile, or Ostad Temsaw, and they called Ayatollah Mesbah as the Ostad Mesbah. So totally rhymed. And it wasn't illegal because I was making fun of a crocodile. Not <laughs> right, right. right. So after it was published, I received a few threat calls from uh, people who introduced themselves as members of Basij and members of 
uh, IRGC. But then the next day after that, there were a number of uh, clergy students in Qom that had uh, actually shut down their, their schools and went into a protest in uh, the major area in, uh, in Qom where all the seminary schools were. And after that, all the seminary schools were shut down. And there was a big protest, I think four or 5,000. Because of students. you? They were shut down because of your cartoon? Yeah, because of my cartoon, yeah. Wow. The, the whole thing was that it was right before the parliamentary elections and the uh, Islamists slash radicals, anti-reformists wanted some sort of leverage against the reformists. And this was, and in a way I had given them the opportunity to protest against the other side. And uh, so things got a little bit sketchy. I, a sketch turned sketchy. So I mean, sketchy is a is a is a very modest word for uh, yeah. being being put in Evan. Uh, you know, that's a that's scary stuff. Yeah, and uh, so I think that the cartoon was published on July third on January thirtieth, and on J February fifth, I was I got a call from the uh, judge who was in charge of the press court. He's the judge well-known for Zahra Kazemi's death as well, yeah. uh, Said Mortazavi. I was just scanning my cartoon. I was at the office of one of the newspapers I worked for at that time. And I should say, I used to draw three cartoons a day for three different newspapers. So I was my own uh, rival, whatever you can call it, competition. <laughs> Uh, I used to publish three cartoons a day and at that time. And so I was, it was, I think around 8 a.m. I was just scanning my cartoon for uh, the newspaper Aftab Amruz. And uh, somebody told me that there's somebody called Mortazavi on the phone. So I picked up the phone. He sounded very friendly. He said, uh, I want you to come to the court and let's talk about your cartoon. We have to resolve this situation. You know, thousands of clergy students and clergy in Qom are really angry. We have to calm them down. It's the best for you to come to the court. So I was summoned like this. And I told him, look, I don't have an attorney. So uh, would you possibly ask the publisher to come to the phone because I knew the my the publisher of uh, my cartoon that crocodile cartoon from the Azad newspaper was right beside him. So I spoke to the uh, publisher and he promised me to hire his own lawyer as mine to so I would have an attorney when I go to the court. But uh, when well, I what, went, what to, was the publisher doing with uh, Mortazavi? I think they were negotiating. Oh. And I later noticed that they were negotiating a deal so I would go to prison and he would go free. Because based on the uh, press law at that time, the publisher was the responsible person hmm. for anything published by his newspaper, not the artist or the writer. But uh, things went vice versa in another way. So, And they were uh, looking for, I, as we say, uh, a pound of flesh. They, need, they, they needed to show yeah. that they're punishing somebody, huh? Yes. So when I went there, I said, okay, where's my lawyer? There was no lawyer. And Mortazavi interrogated me for three and a half hours. I think one of the worst hours of my life. 
and because he was before becoming a judge he was a uh, he was an interrogator and um, I was really worried for my family but I tried to keep calm and he tried to force me to confess to drawing Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi. I said, no, this is a cartoon character like Mickey Mouse, like the Pink Panther. <laughs> this is it. Said, I, there's something that they say in Iran, the, the, the judges in the Islamic system say, El the knowledge of the judge. He said, based on my knowledge, I know that you're a criminal and you have... Uh, attacked Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi. And I said, no, your knowledge is good for nothing. And he didn't like it. And he said, okay, so when I send you to Evin, you will notice the difference of the level of interrogation and you will, in a way, uh, scream or shout the name of uh, the character. Nick, when these things are happening, just uh, uh, this, these stories are always so crushing for me. And, and um, but also, I, I wonder what the mechanics of them are. So, are you in a courtroom and having this conversation, like in, mm-hmm. in or like in front of people, or or is no, no. is this in a back no, no. room where he's kind of it's no, you no. and him? It's in the courtroom. It's in the courtroom, and then there were two uh, police officers there, and I think his uh, secretary. Nobody else was there. And you're, are you allowed to bring anyone with you? I mean, it, it, I wanted to, I couldn't. So, because it, it you. Clearly, you would have been worried that this is some kind of trap that you're that what happened is good. What ended up happening was going to happen. Yes, right. I was. I knew it was a trap, but I had no other options because uh, the night before, um, a car full of uh, revolutionary guards had just guarded my apartment, and my wife had told me not to go home until the car was gone. The those people were gone, so I. I, I was waiting to be arrested, but at least I at least people knew that I had been summoned. My right. publishers knew. Right. So, yeah, it, it it was a little bit difficult. The threat, the level of threats were scary, and I was really worried for my family. But I tried to just play calm. So, the interesting thing is that you, I mean, you're really, I called you courageous earlier. Um, you come out of this pretty sassy. I mean, you, you, you know, if, if the intention was to shut you up, uh, it didn't work. And I found a quote from you at the time. I don't know if you remember saying this, but um, it's pretty, as I say, it's pretty sassy stuff. Uh, given a very, very severe situation, um, you say. I feel insulted by you. You're talking about the verdict. And you say, I feel insulted by such a small verdict. By the way, you're sentenced to four years, right? And you say, I've asked a lawyer in Tehran to sue the judge on my behalf for insulting me. Only four years for all the many cartoons I've drawn of, of Ayatollah Khomeini. That's for another case. This is that's another oh, that wasn't for this? No, no, no. It wasn't for this. Oh. That's, that's another case. Well, there you go. I mean, this is, uh, you, you know, but but it, 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 it gives us some insight into the tone that you're taking with um, you're, you're sort of um, playing with fire, uh, but but undaunted when these things happen. Tell me about that. Just tell me about the the. The, the fact that you, I mean, I've got to imagine there was family and friends saying, hey, buddy, back off, stop, you know, make cartoons of of, of uh, flowers or something in the meantime. Yeah. I used to get this message all the time uh, from my, even my, from my late grandpa who had died three weeks 
uh, prior to, to that uh, incident. And I think his last words were that, uh, look, BBC is talking about your cartoons. Something's going to happen. Just watch out. Don't uh, take a wrong path. And um, Grandpa was dead and I was doing what I w was doing. But the thing is, um, there are points, there are parts, and there are times that you are scared of being scared. And that turns you into a courageous person. At that point, I was scared of being scared. I'm not a uh, courageous person. I'm not brave, but um, I really didn't want to be scared. So that's what I can tell you. What led you to leave in 2003? <sighs> Look, between 2000 and 2003, so many things happened. The first thing was after spending six wonderful days in Evin prison that I had possibly the best food I expected. This is, this is real. This is not a joke because we were at section 209. You might, you may have heard of section 209 in Evin prison. It's, uh, it's one of the worst places on earth mm. in a way, but in those certain days they were, extra careful not to do anything wrong so i was able to have a good time in a way but i was really worried about my family i had no news i couldn't uh, i i was um not given any permissions to visit my family to even i didn't get given I, I didn't even have the opportunity to call them mm. so my uh my wife was able to send me my medication. And the funny thing was when I entered the prison, I and they had to register me. The young officer over there asked me to draw his caricature. Because <laughs> he asked me, are you the one who made that trouble in Rome? I said, yes. So, okay, please draw my caricature and sign it. I wow, it. right. So, okay, I drew his caricature. And when my wife gave my medication to my colleagues and they went to uh, Evin prison and just saw the officer at the gate and told them this is Nikahan Kosars, that young officer ran from the gates to 209 to give me my medication. Wow. This is something that you do not expect. Right, right. This is like a miracle. So that's the first phase of sainthood, if ever happens. But the thing is, uh, in prison, I learned a lot from my cellmates. Uh, people, one, one of them was on the death row, um, and one of, another one was being interrogated and beaten up continuously. He didn't tell me the whole story, but I was learning from their experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was, I felt very lucky, actually that I wasn't being uh, harassed, beaten in prison. And I was in a way kicked out of prison because it was right before the elections and my story in a way became bigger than the elections itself. So the National Security Council decided to actually uh, free me on bail. So I was kicked out of prison on bail and, uh, but when I went back to the court, they took me on a hearse. 
that was scary because right. I wasn't sure what I what I was going to end right. actually uh, were they taking me to Beisha Zahra the cemetery or were they taking me to the court so I wasn't really sure about my fate at that moment so it took me half an hour to notice though they were taking me to the court so when I went to the court I saw my wife and daughter my daughter was six months old at that time and um, the judge Mortazavi brought a big file of cartoons. He's, he had arrested me on two cases, on two cartoons, two charges, and he was charging me with drawing 164 cartoons. And he told me that one of those cartoons could actually bring me the death sentence. He said that I had insulted the holy book and a prophet. Wow. And I think that was the scariest moment in in my life at that moment, mm. at that time, even even until this moment. So um, I had actually made fun of the brothers of Joseph, the prophet, the ones who threw him into a well and comparing them with the agents of the Ministry of Intelligence who were killing their own brothers. And he said that you have insulted a prophet. So that was really weird. So I, as soon as I got out of prison, uh, I wasn't allowed to draw any cartoons for 10 days because I was, I was awaiting my trial. And, but um, many uh, reporters who were covering the uh, Iranian elections were in Tehran. And like there was a gentleman from... Um, the Toronto Star, mm -hmm. uh, who interviewed me, Mr. Contenta, and he published my story. And that, at that time, my grandma and my aunts were living in Toronto, so it was a uh, endearing story for them as well. Sandra and, Contenta, yeah. Sandra, yeah. And uh, another uh, reporter was from the Wall Street Journal. You know him by the name Daniel Pearl. Wow. So Daniel came to my office, and he wanted to learn more about the impact of satire and cartooning on the Iranian society while he was reporting the elections. And it was weird. We became friends. I He wanted to, because I was publishing my first book at that time. Uh, we went to my publisher's office uh, and we hung out. We uh, went to a cafe and we were in touch for a long time and he wanted to work on a feature story about cartooning the history of cartooning in iran he did a story on music so he didn't finish the story about cartooning so so and, so in the aftermath of this uh, traumatic episode with evian etc you you're not necessarily your first thought isn't i'm going to leave iran um no. we're still in 2000 so what what happens that by 2003 you you change your mind and you you decide you must leave. Look, in 2001, I even um, traveled to Toronto because uh, I had won an, uh, an international award and it was the uh, American-Canadian Editorial Cartooning Convention. I received my award over there. There were people asking me to stay, not to go back, but I had my family in Iran. My mm. daughter was almost two years old, my wife, my family, and I, and I thought that, oh, Things are not that so bad. I can spend a few months in prison and uh, I can handle it. But 
things went south when in 2002, when I learned that the person that Ayatollah Misbah had referred to with a suitcase full of US dollars was actually a journalist from the Wall Street Journal who had gone to Tehran in January 2000 with a suit, big suitcase and a fixer had made a joke about his suitcase telling a cleric that this guy is going to bribe Iranian journalists against Islam. So the suitcase of Daniel Pearl became that joke that I that I drew and published a cartoon in a way about it. And from that time, I was, um, to my interrogators and to the court, I was considered a student of Israel. Huh. So, um, and in later, uh, in early 2003, not early, it was in May, there was an envelope under my seat at a meeting and somebody passed me the envelope and said, have you dropped this? No. So when I opened the envelope, there was a letter. I read the letter. It was uh, not even a death threat. It was a death sentence. From that whom? Said that, From whom? Uh, a group that called itself the children of Nawab Safavi. Nawab Safavi was a famous assassin in the 1950s in Iran, 1940s and 1950s. And he was an Islamist who was executed uh, I think in the mid fifties and these guys um, had said that uh, Mr. Nikan Kosar, uh, you have been sentenced to death by three uh, Islamic jurists uh, for your actions against Islam. And I first thought, okay, it's a prank. It's something like a joke, but the next day, uh, a list was published, and nine other people were on that list. And they, some of them had received a similar envelope. I got scared when I noticed that the Khatami government had contacted the other people who were in Iran. Some of them were not. Like, uh, there was one uh, satirist who had left Iran, and he was also on the list. They had thrown the envelope into his uh, wife's home. And the other people were prominent individuals who even had bodyguards. The Khatami government, the Ministry of Interior, had contacted those people who were inside the country, and I learned about it. Nobody called me. And at that point, I thought that I had become somebody that the reformist government disliked. And I had no um, political value, no leverage. And I thought that I, I, the best thing for me to do was just to leave the country. So I contacted my friends at the Cartoonist Rights Network and also Reporters Without Borders and told them the situation. And um, I got a, a visa from France. But uh, since I wasn't sure uh, that France would be a good place for me because there were many Ir Iranian agents in Europe and when you get a death sentence like that from an Islamist group uh, it's not going to be really easy and um, uh, the cartoonist rights network contacted the Canadian Cartoonist Association and they were very nice and sent an invitation for me to attend their uh, convention in Quebec City to give a speech about um, Iranian cartoonists and the war in Iraq. It was early 2003. Right. 
So that that played well, and I was able to leave the country. But just five days after I left, um, the officers from the court went to my old apartment to arrest me. So I was really, really lucky. You, Nick, you come to Canada uh, at that point, two thousand and three, and the story goes that you 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 worked as a dry cleaner. Yes. Yes. Um, and I and I, I I wonder. I mean, was it difficult? to go from being a high-profile editorialist that people knew, a lot of people probably you know loved and supported, you had your enemies, whatever, but you're kind of, you have, you're, you're a person of status in that sense, to being relatively unknown in Canada and cleaning clothing, or was it somehow emancipating? Um, look, when you're um, an editorial cartoonist in Iran and you're I was not just an editorial cartoonist at that time. I had a, I used to run an environmental news agency as well. I I worked for a couple of newspapers, and the amount of money I was making in Iran was much higher than the amount of money I was getting as a part-time uh, employee or customer service representative, whatever you want to call it, dry cleaners in Mississauga. When I left Iran, I was an adrenaline junkie because I was always yeah. under a lot of pressure. Yeah, and it's quite a transition. Yes, and I started getting bad dreams. I was uh, always having, I, I, I call them nightmares and daymares because even when I was taking a nap, I had a bad dream. And I was worried about my family, my uh, four-year-old daughter, my um, colleagues, and I was on a visa at that time, although I had been told that I, I could seek asylum in Canada as soon as I enter, I knew that that would cause a lot of problems for my family. So I wanted to find a way to bring my family to Canada before seeking asylum, and it didn't work out. I was going nuts, and a good friend of mine who is on the board of uh, Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, CGFE, actually uh, helped me uh, get the funds, enough funds to see a therapist. And the therapist was a very kind individual, diagnosed me with PTSD. So I hadn't heard of PTSD at all. Hmm. And I noticed that, okay, I have to acknowledge that there's something wrong with me and I have to live with it. And just a couple, a few months later, I got my first threat in Canada. It was a death threat. I was, my name was on a list and there was a message that they knew where I lived. So from, from an Iranian, obviously from somebody. Apparently. Yes. Right. But they found out that they checked out the IP address of those messages because there a few people were on that list. Uh, and the IP address said it was coming from the Iranian national TV uh, internet connection. So wow. That's what we learned. And um, I contacted RCMP at that time. And it was the first time that two gentlemen came to my relative's house in Mississauga to interview me. The, I, I'm not sure to say the good cop, bad cop thing, but no, they were two very two nice people. Mm. And uh, at that point, I knew that I had no other options but to stay in Canada. And uh, Canada became my home and gave me purpose. Mm. And I sought asylum. I was working at a dry cleaners. I I used to make a I used to make fun of it. I drew a cartoon about it. I 
used to work for the press in Iran, and now I was pressing shirts. I was the <laughs> president. So I used to play with these words, and I loved the pun thing. So it worked out for me a little bit. I worked at the dry cleaners until um, one day I was shoveling snow and I tore my muscles, my back muscles, so I couldn't work anymore. And I was um, actually seeking, going to job interviews in Toronto and uh, sending resumes to different people, different stores even. And I heard the word Canadian experience. I didn't have the Canadian experience mm. to get a job or I was overqualified. So didn't work out for me until a very nice Iranian Canadian helped me um, get an interview with the Canadian uh, news agency that was called CCN Matthews at the time, then Market Wire, and I became the midnight shift editor for three years. What do you mean by coming to Canada gave you purpose? To live. Look, from the day I received the death threat in Tehran, it wasn't my first death threat actually, but this certain death threat was serious because the name of the children of Nawab Safavi was the same name of the group that assassinated a number of uh, writers and elites in uh, 1998. I was I was scared. I had two options. One was to go to the regime officials and uh, apologize, say I was sorry, I'll be a good uh, soldier, whatever you can call it, I'll be a good boy, or just leave and do what I want to do. So when I came to Canada and I decided to stay in Canada and live in Canada, I thought that I'm going to bring my family to Canada and we're going to start a new life. I, God has given me a new life, a new purpose. Mm -hmm. If something had happened to me in 2003, that means I would have died before reaching the age of 34. And now I'm 50, almost 53. So I'm lucky. And I owe it to my Canadian friends and family members who live in Canada. Um, you, so you love Canada so much that you live in Washington, D.C. now. Um, Actually, it's a matter of safety. It, yeah. it's, it's sad to say that I, when I received a couple of threats in Canada, uh, and I thought that this could possibly uh, become a, a routine and it would bother my family, uh, as soon as I got a job offer, I went for it. You know, it's interesting you should say that because I wanted to ask you about, uh, you've talked about Iranian Canadians uh, being on the inside of the, the water issues too uh, uh, in Iran and, and the corruption around that. So I, let, let, let's let's segue into water sure. and, and what has become, I mean, you certainly haven't shied away from being a public voice, uh, that's for sure. And um, first of all, let me ask you a general question because you, Yes, you study geology and you come from that science lineage on your dad's side, et cetera. But uh, environmental uh, issues are, are a pretty big pot. Tell me about why the water crisis in Iran in particular has been something that you have wanted to address. Possibly understanding the water issue from uh, a very young age helped me uh, move towards that path. I went to elementary school, the first two years of elementary school in Oregon State, USA. Mm. 
and my dad was getting his PhD. And so when we went back to Iran, uh, my dad was working on different projects. And right after the revolution, they wanted to give him a high position in the government. So he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to become a minister or vice president or anything. He he decided to go as far as possible from Tehran and do some research. And he did this project on about uh, flood water spreading on hmm. planes and on alluvial planes. And what he did helped control uh, those floods and also uh, recharge the ground, the aquifer. So I could see the effect of that work on the lives of people, on the villagers, on the people who were living in arid zones and had lost their farms. But because of this project, they had enough water to start farming again and right. irrigating their right. farms. So I saw and, and I saw reverse uh, immigration for the first time, because when people leave somewhere, they don't want to go back. But people came back to those villages in, in the Fars province. In the 1990s, when I entered the world of cartooning, I also became a journalist. So I started writing for newspapers and I noticed that many people have no idea about water issues and environmental issues or geology or earthquakes. And I started writing um, short columns or even long articles mm. for different publications, especially the Hampshire newspaper under pseudonyms, because I didn't want to be recognized as the one who both draws cartoons and writes right, these articles. Right. But at a point uh, in the late 90s that I had won a few awards and my, people knew my name, I started using my writing my name under the article. So not even bylines, my own name. And then I, um, it was in 2001 that I started writing uh, op-eds about bad policies of the Ministry of uh, Energy. Well, let That's me quite- let me actually stop, stop you at 2001 because um, I want to specifically ask you about that. You know, just to, again, to sort of shift this into context, and I'm going to ask you a few questions about this so you can keep your answers economical and I'll, I'll, I'll walk sure. you through it. But, but uh, the... You know, for I think for a lot of people, um, and I dare say I, I'm embarrassed to say myself included, the water crisis issue in Iran feels like a new issue. It's something that we've learned about in recent years. And of course, there were the big protests last year, Khuzestan, Balochistan, etc. Um, we learned that, of course, this is not a new issue. And you recently posted um, a video uh, on your social media. It was your witness statement uh, at the current uh, human rights situation in Iran, a subcommittee on international human rights, 44th parliament, in which you say you warned President Khatami uh, over 20 years ago. So this is probably back to 2001 or so about the water crisis in Iran. So what did you say to him at the time? So that's the bingo point. Uh, when I wrote these op-eds, I was summoned by the president. So I went and met with President Khatami. It wasn't my first time seeing him, but on that certain occasion, he wanted to see what was this cartoonist writing as a geologist about his government's policies on water. So it was weird for him. So I told him that, look, you are neglecting Iran's aquifers. Your Ministry of uh, Energy is building dams that are going to destroy the rivers and lakes and marshes. And you're going to 
turn many farmers into unemployed individuals who have no options but to leave their farms. And Khatami just smiled, smiled at me. He said, we, we have, there are no worries. All our projects are, uh, I don't want to say kosher, halal or whatever. Right, they're, right. they're good. They're legit. Right. All of our projects are legit and there's a lot of science behind it. I said, look, watch out. These uh, projects will cause problems in the next 10 to 15 years. But this, this feels very prophetic, you know, what you were saying at the time to Khatami. I mean, were there a lot of, was it was it common knowledge amongst geologists that this stuff no. was screwing up or? No, no, I think it was the DNA that was kicking. Right. I, Look, because if you if you witness the changes in rivers through time, where uh, I had worked in different areas in the country, and I had witnessed some um, reduction in, let's say, the flow of water in some rivers, and or the level of water tables and different level of water table in different parts of the country, and I could see a trend, and things weren't getting better. And uh, the thing is. Um, IRGC, or what we call the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps, and its Khatam um, al-Anbiya construction firm became the main people to go to to build dams. Right. And um, Rafsanjani actually helped a lot of uh, IRGC generals to enter this dam building business. And there were also consulting firms that were suggesting uh, to build dams without doing any uh, legitimate uh, environmental impact assessment on those areas. Look, in Canada, if you want to build a big dam, it takes decades to get approval. Hmm. Like the Site C dam in uh, British Columbia, it took, I think, over 30 years to get the permits to build it. And they're just working on it. So, so could I but ask it, you, I mean, just forgive me if this is reductive, but... Sure. Um, is it the case that when we talk about, I mean, you've pointed out that Iran, you've called it a water bankrupt nation. If, of course, if, that's that's Kava Madani's. Is that Kava Madani? Well, well, yeah. it's 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 a it's a powerful uh, it uh, phrase. But but even if we say water scarcity, is it the case that we're not talking about? Or at least we're not entirely talking about the fact that there's no water. It's not like the droughts in California where all of a sudden there is no water. What we're actually talking about here is mismanagement of the of yes. the existing water, right? Look, we have Iran has always been an arid and semi-arid country. We have our deserts, we have our mountain ranges, and we have some small portions that are getting enough rain. We have big rivers, small rivers, lakes, marshlands, playas, and people have been coping with this situation for thousands of years. But since the 1950s, things changed. I think it was one uh, Truman's point four plan actually wanted to help Iran, but really didn't. And then water transfer schemes from one basin to another basin, building mega dams, and uh, starting um, big farming projects, extracting whatever groundwater they could without understanding the importance of recharging those aquifers, dried up many parts of the country. And now we have land subsidence all around the country. A city like Isfahan, that's the jewel of our country, mm -hmm. is now 
drowning in its own soil in a way. It's subsiding by, by the rate of, in some parts, 18 and a half centimeters per year. And in nine to 15 years, the aquifer beneath Isfahan is dead. So let me ask you about a few of the things that you've said about what this water scarcity uh, the reasons for it and 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 also the implications of it you've said nick for example um iranian officials do not believe that water is a human right yeah uh, can you contrast that with the way water is seen by other countries around the world i mean is it generally considered a human right no uh it's the, the whole idea of uh, having water as a human right started the, the, the conversation started in the late I think uh, from the 1960s or even better to say 80s, the international covenant on uh, economic, cultural and social rights actually uh, was a start for that conversation. And people were talking with with the UN and different officials all around the world. And it was in 2010 when Ban Ki-moon was the secretary general that water and sanitation mm. became human rights. So one thing is that people, many people in Iran still are not aware that water is a human right. Two, the government does not distribute water fairly mm. in Iran. There are people in marginal areas that do not receive the amount of water that people in the cities are receiving. And then, because of lack of uh, environmental justice in Iran, when a project is going forward, some parts of the population benefit from it and others do not. Is that what environmental justice means? That the, the idea of Partially. everyone should benefit? I, um, I thought it meant not, not, not going after the people who are polluting. No, look, uh, the, the whole thing is that environment is not supposed to lose be a loser in this conversation right. as well it's not right. just the people but also the environment itself so first of all the regime has polluted groundwater has depleted groundwater resources and because of that many parts of the country are subsiding and the, the, the subsidence turns uh plains green plains into deserts so the desertification of the country is partially because of government's policies why because the islamic republic wanted to be self-sufficient mm. in food production because of its ideology it knew that it would be right a menace and the sanctions would actually block many countries from sending food to iran so the ideological uh, part of the regime said that okay we use whatever resources we have for the benefit of i call it the animal farm the islamic animal farm <laughs> So this is the part where the regime tells farmers to produce wheat and grains, right? As much as they could, right. and even rice. In, in, and, and they produce rice in regions that are really dry, and that's weird, because you need lots of rain to produce rice, or even sugarcane. But that's, that's, that's a problem. The ideology or the politics of the regime has uh, destroyed Iran's environment. And the very few people who are benefiting from this are either connected to the IRGC mm. or doing business with the IRGC or part of the IRGC. And unfortunately, many people connected or 
in a way cooperated with these projects are living in Canada. Well, let me get to that because that that I want to hear about that. But two steps back, when we talk about water scarcity and this mismanagement, we're often thinking about it in terms of the implications for human beings, which can be devastating. Yeah. But this can't be good for wildlife and no. and and flora and fauna, right? Uh, uh, tell me what the implications are for wildlife in Iran. Uh, it reminds me of the late Kavusayed Emami, who lost his life defending the environment yeah. of Iran. And he was an Iranian Canadian, Canadian as well. Yeah. And there are many Iranian activists, many environmentalists, who are trying to save whatever resources possible for the sake of Iran's wildlife. And because of all these projects that lack environmental assessments and the benefit to cost ratio is not acceptable, but the government orders different uh, organizations to go forward with these projects. And they are destroying both soil and water resources, forests and grasslands. We have lost many grasslands in the last decades. And they have turned into first farms and then farms into deserts. Mm. So when a farmer turns a grass, a part of a grassland into a farmland and irrigates that farmland and then loses his water resources, that part of land turns into a desert. He deserts that part of land. And this is what happened in Syria. This is what happened in Iraq. We are, this is happening right now in Iran. So quitting those uh, farmlands when land is also subsiding is turning most of the country into a, a desert. Yeah. I, 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 which is incredibly sad amongst other it is. things, uh, in ter- uh, you know, no future. What is this thing about, uh, you, you've talked about a number of Iranian Canadians being complicit in having assisted the, for- the, the, the current regime in, in destroying the environment. Who are these Iranian Canadians and what is it that they're doing? Um, there are a number of consulting firms in Iran that have been working with Khatam al-Anbiya construction firm. And one of, the, one of them is Mahab Quds. Mahab Quds is a very powerful company. And the head of Mahab Quds is a guy named Tarkish Duz. He has two sons. One of his sons is, I think, in, still working in British Columbia. One of them came to Canada, but his young wife couldn't stand the weather here and went back to Iran and gave birth to a baby. I know these because I have some very good sources. And Mr. Takish Duz is has become one of the richest officials in Iran through the money he made through all these projects and contracts with IRGC and the Ministry of Energy. And many of his employees, those who have been working on those dams that have devastated Iranian rivers, marshlands, and different uh, lakes, are living in Canada. I have nothing against them, by the way. What I'm saying is that they have to come forward and say how much money they made on those projects that destroyed those parts of my country. I'm Iranian and Canadian. 
But this is sad that I see that Canada has become a safe haven for people who have been part of that environmental destruction. At least they should feel responsible in a way and talk about those projects and how those projects went forward. Because in the near future, I believe that we won't have uh, the Islamic Republic in a few years because it's not sustainable. This regime, to my belief, is not sustainable because it doesn't have enough resources, water resources, food. And at a very certain point, the people who are not scared of this regime and are scared of being scared will stand up to this regime. I'm not sure when, but it, it will happen. At that day, we need the help of many Iranian Canadians to rebuild Iran. So we need the information to rebuild Iran. Mm. And those people who were part of the destruction, in a way, are responsible. So I want them to know that people like me want their help to reconstruct the country. The worst part of this water crisis is listening to people who, professors, scientists, people who know about this stuff, uh, say that there's simply no easy way out of this. It's it's a it's a disaster that will take decades to to reverse or as or as a corrective. And yet, I think about people like you who are so outspoken and who are activists or, or journalistic activists in this in this realm. And I always think somebody who is as outspoken as you've been about this has to, on some level, be an optimist. You have to believe that. Um, change is possible as otherwise you wouldn't be putting your time and passion into this so do you believe there are this? solutions look there are solutions um in some parts you have to mitigate and you have to control the situation in some parts there are solutions one is using flood water to recharge aquifers and we can still store almost uh, 40 billion cubic meters per year in our aquifers through floodwater management and floodwater spreading on. So who needs to make that decision? Um, First of all, I think people have to be part of this because in a democracy, when people are involved and they take responsibility, they should be part of the solution. It's not supposed to be just the government or we haven't, we're we're tired of having all those decisions coming from high up. People have to be part of the solution. And the other thing is that people have to understand that when they hear something like a a dam is being built, they have to ask for the environmental impact assessments and the benefit to cost ratio of those projects. They have to take responsibility. They have to go forward and ask questions. They have to question the authority and they have to bring accountability. We do not have accountability in our country we have to start let me ask you a final question or two about um your your journey as the as the journalist the blogger the activist and and the and the the artist the cartoonist um you said earlier i i knew about the fibromyalgia i didn't know that that had had implications for your ability to be a cartoonist i'm sorry how how what are the mechanics of that how why is it that you can't cartoon 
Uh, it was in 2013 when I was drawing a few cartoon characters for a website that I used to run. And then I felt a lot of sharp, a lot of pain and then sharp pain in my right arm. And, and uh, my arm started to shake. I, I didn't have any control when I wanted to draw anything. So drawing even a, a simple drawing that you usually would take at most five minutes would take seven hours to be satisfactory. Mm. E semi-satisfactory and there were moments and then i was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and then the i started uh, all the medication and all the uh therapy gradually i lost the urge to draw because when i when i wanted to draw i wasn't able to draw and then sometimes that my hand was my hand didn't have any problems i i didn't get the ideas the funny ideas i needed to uh mm get for my drawings and generating ideas is really difficult uh, for cartoonists who are in pain or have any significant problems. And so I couldn't bring a balance to that. And at that time, I was running also a news website. I wasn't just working as a cartoonist. So I used to run a news website. It was a very popular news website at that time. And um, I was also working on water issues water news at that time as and um i thought that it might be um although it's a curse also it's a it could be a blessing as well that i am supposed to dedicate my time and efforts uh, working on water issues and uh elevating the knowledge of people and uh, raising awareness mm. that was the second time that i had a real purpose I, I I love that. I love that you were able to turn this around and see it as as a blessing. But it it must be difficult for you. It's like a singer who can't use their vocal cords or a football player who can't kick the ball. I mean, I'm the, going to show you one of my last card my caricatures that I liked. I'm, I'm not sure if you can. I, I, I'll send the copy. Okay. It, I mean, a lot of people are listening to us right now. They can't yeah, see it, but so we'll we'll put it up on our on the on the YouTube sure, version send, of this. Yeah. I'll send it for you. It's um, Foreign Minister Zari, former Foreign Minister Zari, that I drew him as Pinocchio. Hmm. And that's, I think, one of my last caricatures that I really liked. I think I drew it in 2016. It took me a long, long time to finish it. But it, I was satisfied. But I couldn't draw the next one for a few weeks. That's the problem that when something like fibromyalgia um, controls your muscles, it becomes really difficult. Then to, how does that uh, feel for you? It's it's really I I've learned how to cope with it. Um, after gaining lots of weight, I stopped taking my medication. I'm uh, coping with the pain, and um, I'm okay. But as the guy who was drawing three cartoons a day, there's got to be some level of frustration, huh? It is. It is frustrating. It is. But I, I usually try to forget. I understand. Um, Nick, it's it's been such a an interesting conversation and, and, and education. And uh, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing around the water. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story, your journey with us. And um, I, I hope we do it again before too long. Well, thank you so much. It was uh, a pleasure talking to you. Funny thing that many people don't know, I interviewed you in 2009 in Montreal. 
Do you remember? You it know, was in- I I knew I I knew I knew you. <laughs> I, I knew I knew you. Uh, yeah. What it was for Radio Zamane, and I interviewed you. I think it was that a, a Blue Bird, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, we were festival. Do- yeah, I in remember. Montreal. Yes, I was doing. And- it's was, it was like a writers' festival or something. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm you were a panelist there. Yes. You, were, you, had a, you were a speaker there, and for a short uh, while, I was an intern at CBC. So I saw you a couple of times over there. So I know we we've met. We go way uh, back. Those, yes, but it's a very very long time. So good to see you again. It's nice to see you again, and thank you. Th- and I and I, I'm I'm a fan. So. Uh, I should. <laughs> so now I know I should have expressed my fandom back then. Um, thank you for this, and uh, hope to talk soon. My pleasure, and uh, it was very really nice talking to you. And I'm happy you didn't Billy Bob me. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't Billy Bob me. Khudafiz. <laughs> Hold Nick Kosar, Nick Ahen Kosar, a distinguished Iranian Canadian journalist, cartoonist, blogger, and activist. Nick joined us from Washington, D.C. today. All right, that's full time for Rooked for today. Remember, August 15th, two weeks from now, is the debut of Talking to Persians, our video travel series, Talking to Persians London. First part of that series will debut on August 15th. We'll put that up on YouTube and remind you about it next week on our podcast, Talking to Persians Preview podcast next week in this space. Um, for all things Rook, our uh, previous episodes, our guests, our funnies, our videos, go to rookmedia.com, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Savvy Roham, Talented Anahita, the fabulous Keon, Super Parisa, Pega, Meritad, Reza, and Shia. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashin. <laughs>